Hello and welcome to Atlantic Fellows Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney. The Atlantic Fellows is a young, growing community where we often ask the question, what will we look like in 20 years' time? How do we reach our potential as a globally connected community in the time of COVID, with an even greater reliance on technology for connection? At a recent Atlantic Fellows event for staff from all seven equity-focused global programmes, we asked two futurists and cutting-edge thinkers to share their thoughts on the meaning of community and how a globally disparate one might flourish in the future. Stephanie Dinkins joined us from Brooklyn, New York. She's a transmedia artist who creates platforms for dialogue around race, gender, ageing and our future histories. She's also a professor at Stony Brook University, where she holds the Kusama Endowed Professorship in Art. Sahail Inayatullah is a political scientist and futurist and professor at the Graduate Institute of Future Studies, Tamkang University, Taipei. He joined us from Brisbane, Australia. I began by asking Stephanie about her art practice and how it's connected to futurist thinking. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here with you. I'm excited to share a little bit of my art practice with you. The futurist part is new to me. I do think about the future, but it's a set of thoughts that come from necessity and just being a person in the world who is thinking about what's going on around us and trying to make a way for the communities that I'm truly involved in and concerned with. I feel like that work then can hopefully be linked out into something larger. So let me introduce you to my practice and we'll go from there. As an artist, I have been looking at artificial intelligence and robotics since 2014, so fairly new practice. I ran into a robot named Vina48 on YouTube some time ago and started to wonder what this robot, especially here in America, meant because it was a Black female robot. She looked like me in some ways, and I was really floored and wanted to know where she came from, what her aims were, why she existed. And as her makers claimed her to be one of the world's most advanced examples of an emotionally enabled robot, I was really wondering how that all got funded. And I made an idea at that moment to try to meet this robot and see if I could become its friend. And that's the way that I wanted to interact with the future. I would just go to visit her in Vermont and have conversations and see where she thought she existed in the world, where she fit. I started to figure out, A, that while the people who were making this robot had really good intentions, as a Black woman, I was searching for something within the robot in the way it existed in the world that I could not find. Like the robot spoke in very good PC terms, but it felt flat. And it made me start to wonder really urgently If people are making these systems that are representative of others, what's important to be inside that system? Who needs to be making them? How do we need to be making them so that there's a spirit of equity and inclusion that comes out of it? And my conclusion became, well, there aren't that many people in the world who are actually making systems like that. It's a very small subset of us. So what has to be done to then push these systems to a space where I would be truly comfortable engaging them and thinking that if they are going to be representing me in communities I know, that they're doing it in a full 360 degree way. So my answer to that question became, well, why don't you make your own thing? Your own interactive chatbot that tries to tell stories and I started thinking about what would it be to make a multi-generational story or memoir of my family 
through an artificial intelligence system? How could I take oral history, which are stories that my family told each other, put them into a chatbot, and then have those available as an archive and really a living archive to then come back to and interact with. Really what I was trying to do is preserve what I found to be special about the way my family interacted with the world. And so making this thing that takes in-depth interviews, it's three generations of women from my family. We sat down, we talked to each other, made a data set. But our data set is particularly small. It's not supposed to work at all. We're using memory and inclusion as acts of cultural preservation and social resistance. And I'm trying to use artificial intelligence as a persistent collective ongoing archive. Really what I'm saying is I would like this thing to exist in a way that is competitive with any other system. So for example, a system that Google or Apple or Facebook might put out. I'm trying to make an archive that sustains the culture not just the words, but the cultural implications of this family that survived the Great Migration in the U.S. coming up and made a way in New York through very specific means and have that as a resource for the family and beyond that. But the thing that I want to talk to you about next is the project that came out of that. It's called Binary Calculations Are Inadequate to Assess Us. This is an app that starts to try to encounter the the world and ask it questions. So instead of now making something insular, it's reaching out and making an app that presents to the world's questions about what we want, how we want it to exist, and what we think should be. And really what I'm talking about is a way to start making governance that is led by or uses AI to get the attitudes of people globally. The question becomes, how do we poll people about what they really want from their society, from the companies that we're around, from their immediate communities? What do we need and how do we imbue care into our digital civic systems? And what does it mean to do that rather than let companies from top down give us structures and then kind of impose information and ways of being on us. We're at a point where artificial intelligence is giving us a great breadth and scope of ways to communicate with each other, to communicate directly with our governments and with our quasi-governmental entities that we work within and around. So the questions become then how do we make participation broader, easier, Global. When I say global, I'm thinking about someone who's nomadic in the Sahara, even trying to get that person. How do we start to pull that in and really use it to guide what we see as needs in the world rather than relying on the systems that we have that are in some ways okay, but in some ways failing us? And so those become the questions. How do we imbue care into the digital world? This is an amazing moment. We talk a lot about the perils, and the perils are actually there. But there's also such opportunity for us to start intervening and figuring out. From my perspective, it's a lot about doing things that I've been told an individual can't really do and just enacting them in some way in the world. And really, they're wonky and not in any way perfect, but they show what can be done and they challenge the greater system. That's been my experience. For the moment, Stephanie, thank you very much. Now let's go to Sahel. Sahel. If we're talking about the future of Atlantic Fellows, I want to put it in a context of futures thinking. When I was in the 70s studying future studies, many of my professors said, you're wasting your life, you're wasting your time. The future will be like today. There won't be so much change in the next 30, 40 years. I remember when I was in my six or seven and we moved from Peshawar to Indiana, 
there was always this commercial called put a tiger in your tank. And it was the sense that energy, explosive energy makes the difference. So you could get away with saying things like each day humble supplies enough energy to melt 7 million tons of glacier. Now, certainly that world has changed. Just recently, Shell, Exxon, and Chevron were stunned by court and shareholder decisions, saying you're actually causing climate change. You knew about this, and you're legally liable. So this change we talked about is occurring, and we know it's occurring every day, whether global financial crisis, Asia financial crisis, 9-11, etc. So when I work with groups like Interpol on global safety, futures used to be a nice thing to have. Now it's a capability one must have. We have to develop early warning systems. Work with the Asia Development Bank. They've started to think about, well, we are an infrastructure bank, but really to make a difference, we have to become a knowledge bank. And the key was not just changing their strategy because Asia is changing so dramatically, and the infrastructure they put into place has become part of the problem in climate change, congestion, pollution, and gender inequity. So there's a shift. Let's move to becoming a knowledge bank and changing our core story from knowledge on a leash to knowledge with wings, knowledge that makes a difference. So if you do that, how do you make that real? You change your story. How do you impact strategy? So we're doing there now through a whole series of programs led by Suzanne Roth, fund the disruptions, fund the solar, fund gender equity, fund peer-to-peer economic transformation. So this is first thing, the world is changing. How do we play a role in it? My own theory is something called CLA, causal analysis, that says you have to find the story, link it to deep culture, link it to system, and link it to your vision or your day-to-day how you think about things. So this is going deep transformation. For example, when I was working in Brunei, their problem was the story was we live to eat. The culture is rice culture. Why is that the case? It's because we're subsidizing rice. What's our discussion? Second most obese nation in the region. How do we change that? Well, let's change the story to eat to live. We start to change the culture towards health. And then we actually change the system. We tax sugar and oil. We move towards plant-based, encourage organic. And the goal eventually by 2030 is to be a regional leader in health indicators. So you're not just changing your measurement or vision, you're changing the culture and you're changing the system. And we know this is going to occur. For example, the shift towards meat to protein and food to software. These disruptions are signaling the changes we're all in the middle of. When I work with suicide groups, they're trying to change the story to a world of roadblocks to what's called the data tree. So we, in this world, we all own the data. Now, these disruptions are not apolitical. When I was working with ESCOM in South Africa many years ago, when we went through this process, they hit them. They said, aha, the future of energy is not nuclear, it's solar. Solar will be political. Let's create community energy cooperatives, and of course, that will enhance gender equity. Let's use AI for platform sharing and create an Uber of energy. And the group said, oh my God, so in really in 10 years, we won't be a nuclear company, energy company. We become, in effect, a company focused on electrifying Africa and creating sharing energy platforms. So I said, this is great. We got it. Let's start. This is what we have to convince the CEO. They said, can you come back in a few months? I said, perfect. By the time I was about to fly back, the CEO has been indicted for corruption. They said, can you run this with the police? I said, certainly. And then again, they said, sorry, the police have been indicted for corruption. So we know energy shifts, future shifts are not apolitical. They're embedded in politics and knowledge and in how we construct reality. But fortunately, the ideas stay on. They move from one group to another group. They have a vitality, memes, or in my approach, what's called microvita, borrowing from the Asian philosopher Sarkar. 
So that's a shift in food, shift in who owns the data, the politics of energy, and a shift where Bangladesh starts the peer-to-peer -peer energy revolution. It doesn't happen elsewhere. It happens in Bangladesh because they're latecomers to this. So this is the notion narrative changes strategy. We are aware of our story, aware of our system. Both work together. The second part of the disruptions are forcing us to change our narrative. Shell and Chevron won't change because they love the planet. They'll change because of litigation. So then the third part of futures is, well, what the world look like? None of us know what Atlantic Fellows would look like in 2040. It's impossible to say. When we were working on the legal rights of robots in the early 80s, I would have never imagined a presentation like Stephanie's in terms of creating your own robot. We were thinking about basically robotics taking over the judicial system. So we don't know the future, but we can imagine alternatives. So the scenario piece I just finished, scenario one, if you ask yourself, what's Atlantic Fellows, is going to be the world of members only. The invisible hand, East Asia leading, and customers looking for the best deal. What happens to Atlantic Fellows in the world of members only? Scenario two is membership expands. The visible hand, state plus market. The circular economy, what's called stakeholder capitalism, more and more inclusion. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because it optimizes wealth, optimizes strategy. This is a world of universal basic income and assets. What are Atlantic fellows doing in that world? Scenario three is going further now. When I'm working with the government of New Zealand, we're talking about the renewables, AI, the well-being economy. Work in Egypt, we're saying, well, actually, if you want to transform, AI must be linked to the most vulnerable, the poorest of the poor. Give them anticipatory reality. Give them the capacity to use AI for transformation. This leads to scenario three, the new club. What's called United Hands, not the invisible hand or the visible hand, but United Hands, moving outside of my village, your village, to the planetary village, and having very clear maxi mini, that you can't enhance global maxi without increasing mini a world of platform cooperatives. But let's go further, 2040, 2050. What does that world look like? This I would call the world after the club, the end of the nation state, patriarchy, hands in movement. They're dynamic. They're changing as the future, as we change. This is a world of energy and material abundance, the renewable energy revolution with 3D printing. So Atlantic fellows will look differently in those four scenarios. Basically, invisible hand, visible hand, sharing hands, and hands in movement. Now, my conclusion in terms of how we're going to construct this is basically I see humans, nature, technology, and spirit in conscious coevolution. By spirit, whether it's inner spirituality, personal spirituality, or the calling of humans towards the mythos of the collective unconscious. We're moving from random evolution to conscious evolution, whether it's COVID or other challenges, we're being forced there. My favorite leader, Jacinda Ardern, she succeeded because she created a story of a team of 5 million and she used best case science. Our challenge is, can we go from a team of 5 million to the thing that for me, for Atlantic Fellows, is a team of 8 billion. To do this, you have to find that story. I'm working with a group called Guru Call Network. And they say, right now, our story is the unbloomed lotus. Great vision, great idea, but we're not connecting. Who should we be? We should be the mycelium network, connecting knowledge, humanity, nature, but for a very clear purpose. As Arundhati Roy says, use COVID-19 for the portal to create a new renaissance. Whether we can do that or not, of course, now goes back to you, the vision. When I was working in Singapore, they said before seeing was believing, data led us. 
Now that we're number one in infrastructure, believing is seeing. What world do we wish to see? What world can we see? And that becomes all the futures. Find the story, link to strategy, find the disruption, look at the scenarios, and finally conclude with vision. Thank you so much. I immediately have a question related to when you're saying COVID is forcing us to think differently, but in a world that you pointed out is so polarized and there is such a lot of dogma around, is COVID really obliging us to think about a better, different future, or is it actually becoming more entrenched? This is a quote from Arundhati Roy. She said, clearly at one level, COVID is reinforcing all the polarities. The invisible is being made visible. COVID is also potentially leading us towards scientific breakthroughs, and COVID has the potential towards a new renaissance. All these are possibilities. Which one we take, this is where agency comes in. Stephanie talked about here's the structure of AI given to us as a given. Do we have the ability to use agency to transform what seems untransformable? And that becomes our challenge. So yes, it can reinforce or it can rewrite This is why I think Atlantic Fellows are who you are. You're here to rewrite history and future as much as possible. I love the idea of story. I think that's exactly what I'm trying to do in certain ways is build that story, choosing what we actually would like to see and how we're going to act. Because we are at this point where it's a crossroads. One project I'm looking at is definitely thinking of just that story as algorithm. And the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we lift, the stories that we choose to pursue have great impact on the trajectory of where we get to going forward. And I think that that's as much in our hands. So as Sahel is saying, Atlantic Fellows, what we choose to do and how we enact is really important. And I will just add that as an individual, people tell me, A, things aren't possible. B, what impact do you think you'll have? And in some ways, I think I have no impact. But in other ways, I can hear and feel in the air the way that bringing story up and presenting particular stories is making drop in the bucket change. And I imagine what happens if we have organizations and lots of people working towards this in ways that they actually believe. One question that comes to mind is that our fellows and program staff are in proximity, often to the communities they're working in and the challenges those communities are facing, but they don't have proximity to each other, not just because of COVID, but also the challenges of distance with seven distinct but interconnected programs. And I wonder if either of you would be happy to speak about how technology will develop as you see it over the next two decades to at least allow that part of the story to come together so that fellows can find that narrative, that story that Sahel has been talking about. I would say thinking about the technology and the ways we've been forced into it in the past, what year and a half, and what they've shown us in terms of the ways that we can communicate, act together, even though we're not in the same spaces. Once we decide how to get around the idea of Zoom fatigue, using it to understand each other and plan and gather is really important. One of the other things I do is run a very loosely knit group called AI Assembly. It's black and brown makers and thinkers and entrepreneurs and bankers and mathematicians, people who are thinking about technologies in very different ways, but it's important for us to come together every once in a while. We talk, we eat, we chat, we think about things in a way that's organic and we never want to leave each other. That's where I keep the success. And we don't track what we're doing, but we know we all have each other to draw on and do draw on each other. 
because of this idea of gathering and knowing each other on multiple levels. So not only professional, but also on the, could I just give you a call to say high level, which I think changes the way that we get to interact and helps us remember maybe some of those greater human goals of being able to be in concert being able to be congregational with each other, which means I think seeing the things that we need as a global community clearer with and for each other. Defining who we are really. There's a question for Sahail here. I don't know if you want to come in on Stephanie's last statement, but there's also a question for you. How do you have inclusive communities when there are boundaries to membership? For example, what about non-fellows who are not in our programs who would not necessarily be included in our network? So for me, just as a real example, I've been working with the Abu Dhabi version of the Louvre Museum, so the Louvre at Abu Dhabi. We've been taking all the museum heads through this process of futures. And it became very clear that, again, story should lead technology because we create technology and then technology creates us. So we said, well, what's a better story for 2050, 2070? The story that came out was the living mirror. Right now, museums are sequential. There's step-by-step, there's an official canon which reinforces empire, we all know that. So what would a future museum look like? We came up with the idea of the living mirror. The mirror is your biome, your genome, your energy meeting, and you co-create and co-construct this museum experience. So now suddenly we have a new story and we start to think, well, what technologies would help us create a living mirror? Is that AI, is that holograms, et cetera, et cetera. So I would always ask, what's our story using the story, then what technologies do we wish to create? I think Stephanie's done that well. She changed the story of AI as a given to AI that an individual can rewrite and assemble. This is quite remarkable there. With the mycelium network was, okay, if we're a spiritual group or a social change group, we want to look at new technologies to connect. Do we have a story underneath it? The story part is indigenous, localized, the myth part, but it must connect with systemic strategy the technologies, the social changes, the investment patterns. So this is what I'm trying to do, to do both at the same time. With New Zealand, they said, okay, if this is the case, we're developing the 2050 infrastructure vision. They said, aha, the problem is our current technologies refocus GDP. What do we really want? Well, what COVID taught us, health is wealth. So we want to shift towards well-being. And thus again, the point about Zoom fatigue. So if my goal for the planet, my country is well-being, then what am I measuring? And of course, I'm measuring prosperity with planet, with people. There's another question. Holding tech companies to account is very challenging. How do we both use these technologies for connection as we are now, but also to work to disrupt the negative aspects like data mining? I would say bringing it to communities outside, sharing what you have. Like I have this problem as well. There's a moment in my life where people are throwing funding and things at me and access. So now it's, well, what do I do with this? I'm trying to go out in very small ways into my local community and talk to folks and help them start opening up and seeing because I don't think that we can afford not to have, quote unquote, regular people thinking about these issues too in a deep way. So my idea is to continue going out, not only in an upward bound way, but also I'm thinking horizontally. How do I share some of the information that I get, some of the funding that I get and put it right back out to the space that I belong to mostly? And then the technology and the challenging, it's really hard. However, just in the making as an individual and showing up, I found that that's an interesting thing to do, especially in my body. So black female shows up at, say, Nokia Bell Labs or Stanford or Facebook 
and says, I'm making this thing and I'm doing research on the same level that you're doing. And I'm doing it in a different way and trying to make things operate very differently. What are you going to do about it? So at least in the face of the, the cohort or the engineers that I'm working with, I'm challenging them to at least shift tiny bits in their thinking or at least pivot them off. I'm about discomfort in a lot of ways. I'm trying to get people to be a little bit discomfortable in what they're doing so that they have to consider things differently. I don't know that we ever really disrupt data mining. I think that's going to go on, but I don't think that means we stop the things that we need and find the uses in ways that technology can be used to bolster support and care versus extract. So we have the spirituality, technology, and all coming together to do this kind of thing that it can do. Whereas before it was an invisible thing. When you mention invisible, it leads me to think about, do people know how much data they're sharing at any given time? As we create our story, as you suggest, as Atlantic Fellows and Program staff in this global community, as individuals, how much data are we giving away? It's not even being mined. We're just saying, here, we're paying for our phones, but you have this for free. I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that, because I know of some marketeers who would say that marketing now is the greatest story ever told and that it's up to individuals to know their rights when it comes to sharing data. If you go back to those four scenarios, there's a way of thinking about it. So scenario one is the old club. So then it's their data. Scenario two, it gets more inclusive. Data is shared. Scenario three, the individual who creates the data, then you have some ownership. And the final scenario, we're in a world beyond data because we've succeeded. So I wouldn't see it. Here's the answer. You're trying to get more and more inclusion. So again, the inclusion and exclusion, if you're dialectical, exclusion and inclusion always go together. There's no point in eternity where they disappear unless you go to spirit level, then you're undifferentiated consciousness, then it doesn't matter, who cares? But in the world we're in now, exclusion and inclusion go together. So with your heart, it's a team of 8 billion, but very clearly there's dogma, there's the politics of evil and corruption. And that's the sharp mind saying, no, here's my vision of the future. I will not allow this. I will rethink it. I will recreate it. So then inclusion becomes exclusive. They'll always go together. So it goes back to what you were saying, know your story and then use technology to help you tell your story and be inclusive. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot lately about infecting other systems with my story. People have asked me, well, what happens if people take your methodologies and your way of working? And I'm like, well, in some ways, that's the best case scenario. Because now I'm taking this thing that I think is very valuable for folks on the outsides of these big stories and pushing it into that system. Tiny bits of inoculation, tiny bits of infection, tiny bits of getting it to work better or differently at least. And so I'm thinking a lot about that. How do we imbue these things with the things that are functional for the rest of us? We are out of time. I'm really sorry. And I just want to say thank you very much to both of you, Sahel and Stephanie. It's been a really interesting conversation. I hope we have a better idea now as a community going forward about how we will look as a connected community in 20 years time globally. So I'd like now to hand over to our executive director of the Atlantic Institute, Evie O'Brien, who has some reflections and appreciations. Evie. Thank you, Fanula. It's my pleasure, as you've said, to offer some closing comments today. Firstly, would like to endorse the words of thanks on our collective behalf to Stephanie and Sahal. Stephanie, thank you for your leadership in challenging new and emerging technologies that legitimises perspectives that are normally denied and one that sustains culture and resistance and radical inclusion. 
I love the comment, binary calculations are inadequate to assess us. So how thank you. Knowledge with wings, knowledge that makes a difference. Find a story, link it to deep culture, and narrative changes future. The sharing hand resonated, and I think will resonate with many of our fellows. Seeing is believing, which includes the ability to see into the past in order to see into the future. A reminder that our fellows, our staff, our community have agency in the story of us. Our community exists to bring people together from diverse backgrounds, culture, race, gender identities, professions and perspectives to find unlikely alliances with people who do not look or think like us and to find connection for greater impact. It is not about holding hands and walking into the sunset. It is about finding connection of heart through our shared values of empathy, compassion and radical inclusion to learn, reflect and act to do things differently because what has got the world here will not get us to where we want to go. Part of that is finding our connected global story. It's messy and wonky, as Stephanie says, but when we show up, lean in, and most of all are present for each other, magic happens. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Atlantic Institute Executive Director Evie O'Brien there, ending the panel discussion on the future of community with Stephanie Dinkins and Sohail Inayatala. To learn more about the Atlantic community, please visit atlanticfellows.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to Atlantic Fellows Conversations.